Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Jake Walker, and you're listening to Living for the Day, a podcast that exists to encourage and equip people to live for and long for the day of Jesus' return. Romans 4, 7-8 says this, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Come on. I'm really excited uh, for this episode. I'm basically going to share a sermon that I worked on for Christian Assembly's uh, fusion community, all about um, being forgiven by Christ and how we can have confidence in our forgiveness because of what Jesus has done. And I believe uh, there are just things in here uh, that are going to help us live for the day, living with an assurance of our forgiveness. It's going to help us live with a freedom uh, and a thankfulness and a gratitude that will help us live for and long for the day when we see Jesus face to face. So, I'm excited. Let's jump right into the episode. All right, here we go. Thanks so much for being with me today. Today is that I'm recording this is April 2nd, 2023, and I'll be giving this message tonight at um, my church for the Fusion Young Adult Community. And I worked really hard on it, and I think there are some things that will encourage us um, in terms of living for the day. So uh, this is also going to be a chance for me to kind of get a run through. <laughs> and I may uh, share some things that I won't necessarily share in the sermon. Um, just because I have a little bit more time here. Um, so we've been in a series uh, at my church called Real ID, and it's all about the most important thing about us is who God says we are. And so I am I have the honor of getting to conclude this series, and I'm so excited for the topic that I get to share on uh, with you uh, and with the amazing people of Christian Assembly. And I'm excited about this topic because as I read the story of the Bible, I see that the problem in the universe is sin. But it's not just out there in the universe. (laughs) It's right here in my heart. And it's in your heart too. It's in our hearts. Why is that a problem? Well, sin defames God, first of all, and, and uh, you know, despises his glory and his infinite worth. And sin also separates us from him and earns his judgment. And one day, every one of us is going to stand before this God and we'll be judged. And unless something happens, we all have the verdict of guilty over our lives. And this topic of forgiveness is just near and dear to my heart. There's this question that I want to know in my bones before I get to that day. And it's this, can I really be forgiven? And I think that there is a sense that this is a question core to all of us. Um, objectively, it's a question core to all of us, whether we know it or not, but it's, can I really be forgiven? 
And hey, sneak peek of the rest of the message. Central to the Christian message, the gospel, is that if you are in Christ, fundamental to who you are, your real ID is you are forgiven. Hallelujah. I love Romans chapter 4, 7 through 8. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. And in this message, in this podcast, my goal is to convince you from the scriptures of the truth that you're forgiven in Christ. But not just because, you know, I don't want to give you just like a fluffy answer. Uh, Yeah, just trust you're forgiven. I want to give you, I want to go into the details of how it's possible that a holy God forgives a sinner like me. And so, let me say a prayer before we fully jump in. Lord Jesus, I just pray for people listening to this podcast right now. I pray for this message tonight. And I just ask, God, that you would get glory, that we would recognize your beauty, your majesty, your infinite worth, and we would come to grips with our depravity and our need for a Savior. And as we do, we just explode in thankfulness for the cross where we're forgiven. So God, I pray for that. Um, Lord, would you help us live in an assurance of our forgiveness if we're in Jesus Christ? In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever considered the significance that the symbol of Christianity is the cross? Have you considered why the cross? How did the cross become the the central symbol of Christianity? And I want to say, the answer must be, if it is to be truly Christian, that it was central to Jesus himself. But was it? And I wish I had time to do a, you know, a whole survey of his life and teachings. But the answer is absolutely yes. Just two observations. First, Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Supper, on communion. Jesus instituted this commemorative act of remembering him. He, he basically set up his memorial service, only it wouldn't be a one-time memorial service, but it would be ongoing regularly when the church meets together to remember Jesus by not his birth or you know his full life or even his resurrection or ascension, but by his, his death. Jesus is teaching on the Lord's communion that he said, do this in remembrance of me after he broke the bread and he He took the cup and he explained that this is his blood poured out for them, his death. Nothing could be more clear that Jesus saw his death on the cross as central to his mission. And I love what John Stott says in his book, The Cross of Christ, which I'm highly indebted to in this message. There is then, it's safe to say, no Christianity without the cross. If the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus. Whew, that's good. So, Communion shows us that his death on the cross was central to Jesus, but also the way Jesus speaks about his hour. And in the book of John, his hour refers to his crucifixion with which uh, his saving work will be accomplished. And Jesus is, you know, coming up to that moment. And in John 12, 27 through 28, he says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, 
Glorify your name. Whew. It's extraordinary to think that within 24 hours of Jesus' death and burial, after a sinless life of about 33 years, Jesus is still thinking of his mission as in the future. Wow. These two small observations lead me to the first point of this message. And that's this. Jesus saw what he would accomplish on the cross as central to his mission. That's good news. Jesus saw what he would accomplish on the cross as central to his mission. Come on. But why? Why did the cross matter so much to Jesus? Why is it the center of Christianity? Well, let's go back to the Lord's Supper. In addition to the centrality of the cross in Jesus' mind, communion also demonstrates what Jesus declared regarding the meaning of his death. Check out Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What is Jesus talking about when he uses that covenant language? Well, there was an old covenant uh, that God made with the people of Israel. And very long Old Testament story short, Israel broke it and judgment came. They were exiled and the prophets, you know, spoke of this judgment, but they also spoke of hope. In fact, one of the prophets, Jeremiah, prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 33, or 31 through 34, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Friends, Don't you see that a core blessing of this new covenant is the forgiveness of sins? More than six centuries pass of waiting for Israel until one evening in an upper room in Jerusalem, Jesus of Nazareth claimed that this new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah is about to be established, the forgiveness of sins being one of its chief blessings and the sacrifice to seal this covenant and procure this forgiveness will be the shedding of his blood and death. Here is Jesus' view of his death. It's the way in which forgiveness of sins and the new covenant will be inaugurated. Wow. The second point tonight is this. Central to Jesus' accomplishment on the cross was the forgiveness of sins. Woo! Hallelujah! I hope that you're seeing, I'm trying to, I'm trying to assure you and, and, and give you some of the logical Um, progression of how you can really be assured you're forgiven, how this really worked, not just because, you know, God should forgive us and he can just magically wave a wand. So central to Jesus's accomplishment on the cross was the forgiveness of sins. But hold on, Jake. Why did God need to do this in order to forgive sins? Why couldn't God just wave a forgiveness wand And forgive us. Sweep it under the rug, God. You're God. Can't you do whatever you want? It's important to ask and face this question. Though it's honest, it betrays a misunderstanding of the nature of God. As we'll see tonight (laughs) in this podcast, the real question is not, why does God find it costly to forgive? But rather, how does God find it possible to forgive? In the words of Carnegie Simpson, forgiveness is to man the plainest of duties. To God, it's the profoundest of problems. 
The problem of forgiveness comes down to the realities of God's holiness and human sinfulness. The problem of forgiveness comes down to the realities of God's holiness and human sinfulness. Okay, we got to break that down. Let's talk about holiness. Central to the Bible is God is holy. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. What does it mean that God's holy? First, let me try a picture. Think of fire. Intrinsic intrinsic to fire is it's hot. That's like the holiness. If I put an ice cube in a fire, because of the fire's very nature, it's going to melt. If I put my hand in the fire, it's going to burn. I could say that, wow, this fire is being very exclusive and not accepting. I could say the fire should just accept the ice cube, but the fire can't still be fire and accept the ice cube because of what the fire is. God's holiness is kind of like that. Because of its very nature, it's incompatible and even consumes sin. Biblically speaking, God's holiness means that he's separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. Which, by the way, is not selfish because he's God. It's actually the most loving thing he can do. Since only he is infinitely valuable, lovely, beautiful, and worthy, And only in this infinitely valuable God can we be truly, eternally satisfied. God's not needy. He doesn't need our honor. We need his honor. So holiness means he's separate from sin, devoted to seeking his own honor. Maybe another picture will help. This one clearly from the Bible, the tabernacle. The tabernacle was where God's presence dwelt with Israel before there was a temple on their journeys. The tabernacle itself was separate from the evil and sin of the world. The first room in it was called the holy place, and it was dedicated to God's service, his honor. It was separate. But then there was a veil to separate the holy place from the most holy place, which was the most separated from evil and sin and the most fully devoted to God, his honor. And his glory. So there's this separateness from sin. Isaiah says, um, they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. But uh, it doesn't just mean separate, 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 or moral, moral, moral. That would be true. But it's more like nothing and no one like. Nothing and no one like. Nothing and no one like the Lord. Saying God is holy is like saying God is uniquely God. He's in a class by himself. He's objectively, uniquely, infinitely, perfect, great, and worthy. There's nothing like him. He's the creator and, and he's, he's, it's just, he's holy. <laughs> Again, a reality that stems from God's holiness is that sin, it's incompatible with his holiness and it's opposed by his holiness. What is sin? Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. As John says it in 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. It's God's lawlessness. <laughs> sin is ultimately first and foremost against our creator God and his law, and it always brings death and destruction. Well, here's the thing, guys. 
To define sin as failure to conform to the moral law of God is to say that sin is more than simply painful and destructive. It's also wrong in the deepest sense of the word. In a universe created by God, for God, sin ought not to be approved. In fact, it ought to be punished. Why? Because sin is the ultimate injustice in the universe. If justice is giving one what one is due, God in his infinite worth deserves only infinite glory, honor, praise, our everything. Sin is not just wrong and evil because of its dreadful consequences, which are terrible, but because of the value and worth of the person it's against and how it steals from him what is his due. Let's get practical. If I hurt a worm, it's not that big of a deal. A lizard, geez, like, don't do that, man. Still not too bad, though, right? A dog, now we're getting serious. But a human? A baby? Just unspeakable, right? We see that the value of the thing or person sinned against increases the injustice and therefore the deserved punishment. If my son, William, grows up and, you know, he's he's going to have a little uh, cousin boy, uh, another baby walker. And if he hits his cousin one day, when he's, you know, say they're in, I don't know, third grade, that's one thing. But if Will hits his teacher, that's another thing. If he hits an officer, that's going to have way more serious consequences. If he hits a president or tries to, the consequences just get more and more severe based on who the sin is against. Don't you see? Sin is not just evil because of the consequences, which are terrible, but because of who it's against. Sinning against God is the ultimate injustice in the universe, the infinitely valuable, beautiful, worthy, precious God. God is infinitely valuable, so the punishment for sinning against him is justly infinite. Our sin is so bad because God is so good. Stay with me on this for a moment. Sin is directly opposite to all that is good in the character of God. And just as God necessarily and eternally delights in himself and in all that he is, which is not selfish, but actually generous of him. So God necessarily and eternally hates sin. Sin is in essence, the contradiction of the excellence and beauty of his moral character. It contradicts his holiness and he must hate it and oppose it. If God in his wrath, which is his firm response, revulsion, and opposition to the cosmic treason of sin, did not punish sin, he would not be a righteous or holy God, and there would be no ultimate justice in the universe. But when sin is punished, God is showing himself to be righteous, holy judge overall, and justice is being done in his universe. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Some will pit God's wrath against his love, but it's a false dichotomy. God's wrath, which is a corollary of his holiness, is an expression of his holy love. Listen, God is not just, quote, love. In fact, love is not just, quote, love. No, God is holy love. And true love is holy love that always wills the ultimate good of the beloved. If God tolerated sin, murder, greed, lust, envy, other sexual sin, then he would be tolerating the very actions that belittle his surpassing worth and glory, 
which also brings such pain and evil into our relationships with one another. In other words, if God went soft on sin, it would be a sign of lukewarm love. It would be a sign of lukewarm justice. It would be a sign that what we're sinning against is not actually that valuable. God's stance, strong stance against sin is because of his generous passion for his glory and his deep love for us, as well as his hatred for all the suffering our sin creates both in our own lives as well as the lives of those around us. Do you see why forgiveness is not a simple thing? It's because of the nature of God. He can't just dwell with or deny sin. He's righteous. He's just. His holy nature demands he punish it. Forgiveness had to come in a way that was expressive equally of his love and his holiness. And the third point of this message is this. Forgiveness is not obvious because of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. So, is it possible? Can a holy, loving God save a sinner like me? Can I be forgiven on that day? When I've sinned against, belittled, and hated the infinitely beautiful, valuable God. Let's go to Romans 3 for the answer and unpack it. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Paul says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Can I be forgiven? There's only one way. And that one way is that God himself took our place as our substitute and bore his wrath as a sacrifice for us. Can it be? Atonement, that word, it basically means reconciliation. Think of how it's spelled, atonement at one mint. It's, it's helping God and humanity become one. Tell me more about this idea of sacrifice. Why sacrifice? The notion of substitution is that one person takes the place of another, especially in order to bear the, their pain and to so save them from it. This idea is universally regarded as noble. It's not surprising then that God applied this commonly understood principle of substitution to sacrifices. For example, after the very first sin in the garden, God gave Adam and Eve skins to clothe themselves, which means that an animal died to cover the consequences and result of their sin. This is pointing to the eventual death of Christ on the cross. The entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament points to the lamb who was slain. Let's talk about the Old Testament sacrificial system. And bear with me because it's vivid. The worshiper would bring the offering, lay his hands on the offering and kill it. The priest then applied the blood, burnt some of the flesh and arranged for the consumption of what was left of it. This was significant symbolism, not meaningless magic. By laying his hands on the animal, the offerer was certainly identifying himself with it and solemnly designating the victim as standing for him. 
The substitute animal was killed in recognition that the penalty for sin was death. Its blood, symbolizing that the death had been accomplished, was sprinkled and the offerer's life was spared. In the Bible, death is never seen as a natural thing. It's, from the beginning, a penal penalty thing. The clearest statement that blood sacrifices of the Old Testament had a substitutionary significance and that this was the uh, why the shedding and sprinkling of blood was indispensable to atonement is found in the statement of God on why eating blood was prohibited. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the creatures in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Try to stay with me here. It's only because the life of the creature is in the blood that it's the blood that makes atonement for one's sin. One life is forfeit, another life is saved. What makes atonement is the shedding of substitutionary life, blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. No forgiveness without blood meant no atonement without substitution. Whew! Can you see what we're moving toward here? Can I be forgiven? There was only one ultimately costly way for you and I to be forgiven. God in his holy love chose to substitute himself as the sacrifice to atone for our sin. Christ chose to be the sacrificial lamb instead of us. The answer is a resounding yes, a grounded, not just wishful thinking. Yes, you can be forgiven. I love this quote by P.T. Forsyth. It was God in Christ, God dying for man. I'm not afraid of that phrase. I can't do without it. Similarly, Bishop Stephen Nail wrote, If the crucifixion of Jesus is in some way, as Christians have believed, the dying of God himself, then we can understand what God is like. Our substitute then, who took our place and died our death on the cross, was God in Christ, who was fully God and fully man and who therefore was uniquely qualified to represent both God and man and to mediate between them. As one scholar put it, the mysterious unity of the Father and the Son rendered it possible for God at once to endure and to inflict penal suffering. There is neither harsh injustice, nor unprincipled love, nor Christological heresy in that. There is only unfathomable mercy. For in order to save us in such a way as to satisfy himself, God through Christ substituted himself for us. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. The cross was an act simultaneously of punishment and amnesty, severity and grace, justice and mercy. Here's the fourth point. In and through Christ crucified, God substituted himself for us and bore our sins that we might be forever forgiven and freed to forgive others. The Creator God, in and through His only Son, became flesh, sin, and a curse for us in order to redeem us without compromising His own character. Wow, what a God. What a salvation. What a forgiveness. How now shall we live? First of all, we need to appropriate for ourselves what God has done. We come back to communion for how we respond. First communion taught us about the centrality of Jesus' death to his own conception of his mission. Second, we learned that Jesus believed about the meaning of his death, the forgiveness of sins, and the new covenant. 
But another thing we learn from communion is the need to appropriate individually what Christ accomplished in his death. Just as it was not enough for the bread to be broken and the wine to be poured out, but the disciples had to eat and drink, so it's not enough for him to die. But they had to appropriate the benefits of his death personally. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In order to receive the forgiveness that Christ paid for, we must receive him. So the first way we respond to the glorious good news of God's grace in Christ is to believe him. We repent of our sin and put that put him on the cross and trust in Christ to be the only way that our sin can be forgiven. We make him our Lord. When we do this, we're adopted into his family and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He takes up residence within us and slowly but surely shapes us more and more into the likeness of Christ. So the first step in responding to the offer of forgiveness is to appropriate it for ourselves by faith. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait. You're not promised your next breath. Be reconciled to God by, the, by grace through faith. The next way we respond is we walk in assurance of our forgiveness. After we've received Christ by faith, we must keep reminding ourselves of the good news of the gospel. The book of James says, we all stumble in many ways. James 3.2 the reality that life will still be a battle with sin can cause us sometimes to doubt if we're really forgiven. Yet we must keep looking at the cross and beholding the sacrifice of God in Christ. If God gave his life for my sin, I must indeed be forgiven. It makes me think of that old hymn, Before the Throne of God Above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the Guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied. To look on him and pardon me. I love that hymn. John Calvin wrote, This is our acquittal. The guilt that held us liable for punishment has been transferred to the head of the Son of God. We must above all remember this substitution, lest we tremble and remain anxious throughout our life, that is, in fear of God's judgment. Yes, Christian, next time Satan tempts you to despair and says your real ID is guilty, just point to the cross where God and Christ substituted himself for you and hear the Father say, I say, you are forgiven. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. The next application, once we've appropriated Christ's forgiveness for ourselves and decided to live confidently in our identity as forgiven, is to extend forgiveness freely as you've received forgiveness. A story from scripture that illustrates the connection between our forgiveness and forgiving others comes from Jesus in Luke 7. A woman who had lived a sinful life came and anointed Jesus with oil and washed his feet with her tears and hair. The Pharisees were indignant, so he told a parable about two men who both owed someone money. One man was forgiven a much greater debt. Jesus asked his disciples, which of the two men will love more? One of the Pharisees replied, the man who was forgiven more. Jesus then turned to the woman and said to the Pharisees, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. 
This story illustrates that when you recognize your forgiveness, you love much, which will include extending forgiveness to others who sin against us. The fifth point of this message, this podcast is this. Forgiven people are called to forgive people. Colossians 3, 13-14 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The only way to forgive is to recognize how much you have been forgiven and trust God to be the final arbiter of justice. If you're a Christian listening to this podcast, I just want to beg you to reflect on how much God has forgiven you and to make it a priority to be a passionate forgiver, a forgiver, a forgiver, a forgiver. At the center of Christianity is forgiveness. Is at the center of Christianity is the cross. It's the gospel. It's that we can be forgiven of our sin and made right with a holy God. Therefore, may it be center to us as a church that we are forgivers. From there, I'm going to lead everybody in communion. So that's, uh, and I'll definitely give people the opportunity to make a decision for the first time. So if, if you're listening to this podcast and you've never um, received Christ and his work on your behalf, um, to save you and to forgive you and to make you right with a holy God. I would just want to plead with you and give you the opportunity. You can do that right now by just repenting of your sin and turning away from it and saying, Jesus, I believe. <laughs> I receive what you did for me on the cross. Forgive me and help me follow you with all my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made that decision, come on, welcome to the family, and uh, come on, you can be looking forward to the day, the day of Jesus' return. And, you know, I just wanted to take a few more minutes and just share, how, how does all this relate to living for the day, longing for the day? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is it can give us peace and, and joy looking forward to the day, knowing that over our lives, if we're in Christ, we're going to hear there's no condemnation, not guilty, <laughs> welcome into heaven because of what Christ has done. And we are forgiven. We're made right. We're justified before a holy God. And that can give us a confidence as we look forward to the day. And so I think that's that's pretty basic and important. But I think, for me at least, when I think of what Christ and God did to forgive me, to save me. It just fills me with such a love for him and a and an awe of him that he would do what he did for a sinner like me when he is so glorious and so holy and so beautiful that he that he did this. It makes me want to worship him. It makes me want to live my life in love for him. It makes me want to tell about him. And so I think when we when we revel in and enjoy and glory in the the story 
and the reality of God's goodness in the cross, I think it's going to make us live lives of thankfulness and response that is going to lead to an even more exciting (laughs) moment on that day. Uh, As we talked about, you know, reward in the last podcast episode, which I encourage you to listen to, you know, how we, how we live our lives, you know, it, it matters uh, in terms of reward also. Basically, just like Jesus said, when you forgive or when you're forgiven much, you love much. And living a life of first and foremost love for God and love for others is going to be just something so much to celebrate on the day. So for the nugget today, I just wanted to bring your attention to 1 Peter 1.12. You know, we talked a little bit about atonement today and how Christ accomplished forgiveness and salvation. And I just wanted to bring your attention that in 1 Peter 1.12, it says that even angels long to look into these things. So there's this sense of there's just this depth that we could never plumb. And I just want to say, for eternity, we're going to get to look into these things and behold the glory of God and behold the glory of His grace. Praise the glory of His grace. And that's exciting to me. Well, hey, I uh, before I close, I'd love to pray for you. And pray that you would walk in an assurance of your forgiveness if you're in Christ. And then we'll wrap up. So here I go. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the cross. Thank you for sending Jesus. And I pray, God, um, for every single person who's listening to this podcast that is in Jesus. God, I pray that they would walk in an assurance of their forgiveness and a response of deep, deep, deep love for the forgiveness that is theirs in Christ. Lord, I, I, I bless them right now with a, just a, a sense and a confidence, Lord, that they truly are forgiven. God, you're so good. Bless this person listening to this right now. Confer abundant life on them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for being with me. And, uh, Let's get out there and be the best forgivers out there. God bless you. See you next time.